What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Brian, and we'll see you in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead in the next hour as we make substantial further progress towards the weekend. The Fed is ready to start tapering, but apart from Chair Powell's taper talk today, he spent most of his time talking about how inflation will be transitory. We'll dive into this paradox and what it means for the markets. And it's hard to build a bear when the supply chain is this screwed up. We talked to the CEO about how they'll weather these difficulties as the holidays approach. Plus, Apple's deal with developers, China's continued crackdown, and a popular stay-at-home play gets hit. But we begin with the market reaction to Fed Chair Powell today, and stocks are higher across the board. We have new records once again for the S&P 500 and for the Nasdaq. Nasdaq leading the way with a better than 1% gain today. Dow up 245 points. It's actually trailing, if you want to call that, of the major averages, up just about three quarters of 1%. So keep this in mind as we move throughout this narrative and tell me what picture you think is emerging here. So we have, again, the NASDAQ leading the way, bond yields declining today. Here's the 10-year yield. Remember, Powell started at 10 a.m. We were in the green, meaning yields were moving higher until that point, and we've been sliding lower down to about 1.31%. We'll talk to Rick in a moment about if we might even break below those levels. Now, gold is also moving higher. Why? Because Powell was talking about transitory inflation. So we see this pop, not huge, but up to about 1819 bucks an ounce. Well, you might think the financials wouldn't be performing that well in this kind of environment today, but take a look. They're hanging on to about a 1% gain here. And some of the regional banks, look at Zions. It's up nearly 5% today, Lincoln National, SVB up better than 2%. Interesting when you have yields moving the other way. And energy is the best performing sector today. Huge move in Occidental here. The sector overall with crude adding about 2%, not so much effect. Excuse me, a Fed story here. It's really a story about Hurricane Ida barreling towards the Gulf of Mexico. We're going to have a whole lot more on that in just a moment. But let's begin with this market reaction to Powell. Dovish kind of looks like it, maybe with the exception of the regional banks. For more, let's go out to Rick Santelli in Chicago. Rick. Yes, you know, we all like Jay Powell, but there was some foul language in that foul was doves. It wasn't eagles. It wasn't hawks. It was doves. And not necessarily a bad thing, especially if you own stocks. But boy, the fixed income market's response was swift. Let's look at an 8 a.m. Eastern intraday of twos. Look at how they dropped. And as you move along the curve, five years at 80 basis points, they're down five. Twos are down three. Let's move to a two-day of tens. Listen, as a technician and former trader, I have never seen such picture-perfect technicals at the yield of 137 intraday yesterday, which is a significant technical area, right to the tick. And now it's backing off right below the market over the last several days. 128 uh, previous high should hold. But we are now in a mode that most likely is going to see subtle drops in rates. And when rates drop and the Fed's dovish, stocks like it, but the dollar index certainly didn't like it. Dollar index is down on the day, down on the week. But the long-dated treasuries, actually, Kelly, are still up six at 131 on 10s, even though it's down four on the session. If you were looking to get a home mortgage or something along those lines, 
I don't think rates are going to be super volatile, but I do think that they're going to potentially be moving back down, maybe testing 112 to one and a quarter level. We'll have to see your insurance. You just don't want to look for lower rates if a 10-year yield closes above 140. Back to you. Well, that's a long way from where we are, Rick, but a very good point. Rick Santelli watching markets for us today. Over the past two days of Jackson Hole, we've had James Bullard, Esther George, Patrick Harker, and Raphael Bostock all hawkish on the Fed's taper timeline. The big question for investors going into today was whether Fed Chair Jay Powell would continue that message or not. Here's exactly what he had to say. At the FOMC's recent July meeting, I was of the view, as were most participants, that if the economy evolved broadly as anticipated, it could be appropriate to start reducing the pace of asset purchases this year. So that's the taper talk this year. Powell saying he was one of the people thinking that was appropriate. Goldman Sachs now saying if the data hold up in the next few weeks, the odds of a November taper are rising. But the data isn't always clear. Like today, we learned that consumer spending dropped in real terms last month. Sentiment remained really weak. But personal income jumped and the savings rate rose. Here to help make sense of it all, joining us now is Ellen Zetner. She's the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. Ellen, it's great to have you. What's your guidance and reaction to Powell's Jackson Hole comments and what it means for the setup for the next month or so now? Hi, Kelly. Uh, I love being on with you and wish I could see you in person. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, you know, uh, Chair Powell basically said, Look, we've, we're, we're there on inflation. We've seen the substantial further improvement or progress on inflation. And so it's still all about employment. And so you highlight some of the risks around uh, today's report uh, on July personal spending uh, that was lower than expected, especially in inflation-adjusted terms. But it really is about employment. And he's looking for a couple of more good data prints on employment. Um, we think he's going to be satisfied on that front. We've got a forecast uh, coming up. Uh, for the August payrolls reported on uh, Friday the 3rd uh, for 725,000 uh, job gains. And we think that puts them on track for that substantial further improvement by the end of the year. Um, what I think uh, is uh, brilliant that Chair Powell did today was do what we love to see from chairs and give his own view. So we now know, which we suspected, that he sits in the center of the committee, the consensus is formed, that if things continue to come in as expected, they're likely to taper or announce taper before the end of the year. That really headed off the hawks. I mean, you talked about the handful of hawks that have come out pushing hard for an earlier start to taper, and we do think that's relevant that they're all coming on record, it was more so for them to try to be sure that the timing of the taper did not slip into next year. Well, now with Powell's acknowledgement that tapering could start this year, the Hawks may be pushing on a string. So, Oh, that's interesting. So, and I'm, I'm looking at the market response, Ellen, and, and thinking through all of this. I mean, is lower bond yields a good sign or not? In many ways, we're dealing with such a low rate environment that usually we see rates rise whenever it looks like the economy will be on better footing. So what does it tell you that rates are declining today? Well, I think a couple of things here. I mean, Chair Powell did a more assertive job uh, of being sure that markets understand that tapering is not tightening, which they mentioned in the minutes from the July meeting, but that's the way the Fed has always viewed it, right? You're still providing accommodation. You're just doing so at a slower pace. So the balance sheet is still growing all along that you're tapering. And importantly, uh, enforcing the message or reiterating the message that 
uh, tapering has nothing to do with the timing of the first rate hike. And for the Fed to start tapering, they have to be confident that the markets understand that because that was why you got the taper tantrum back in 2013. The behavior of 10-year yields tells the Fed that the markets understand that starting tapering doesn't say anything about when they actually will eventually start hiking rates. Right, although I guess in a much more basic way, Every time I see yields fall, Ellen, I think this can't be a great sign for the economy. You know, a 1.3% 10-year, to me, just feels either it has no economic information or it's talking about deflation, maybe, I don't even think stagflation, just slow economy, very few, you know, inflationary pressures over time. I mean, not the kind of world we really want to come out of this living in, right? Right. Well, the Fed would certainly like to see, uh, would not be uncomfortable with a higher 10-year yield because financial conditions are extraordinarily accommodative and there's room to absorb higher yields. Um, do they believe that yields are lower because of a growth scare? No. And I don't believe yields are lower because of a growth scare either. I think it is reflective of the markets are still have a healthy dose of skepticism that uh, in, inflation will uh, sustain above the Fed's 2% goal. Um, I think Chair Powell did a very good job of, of not just talking up the transitory nature of inflation, which uh, they've done so many times over, but providing five firm bullet points on just why they believe it will be transitory. I mean, really taking the markets to school uh, on that. And the markets obviously have, have heard the Fed because the longer run inflation expectations have certainly have a lot more room to pick up. But I think where I do think yields can rise and be more reflective of the of the risks out there is that uh, the path that uh, we're pricing in uh, for rate hikes once the Fed does start to lift off looks low. Our rate strategists have been noting this. They're short duration. Yields should rise. And maybe it will take the September meeting when we see another year of the dot plot for markets to start to price in a greater risk that the Fed could have a steeper path once they do eventually lift off. Very, very interesting. Ellen, I would say great to see you, but it's great to hear from you (laughs) today. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for being here and explaining a little bit more about this market reaction. That's Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. And will get Vice Chair Richard Clarida's thoughts on tapering when he joined Power Lunch next hour. So this conversation isn't over yet, and we'll look to see uh, just what nuance he wants to add to the Fed's messaging today. Really looking forward to that in just about an hour's time. All this talk over the past two days has sent stocks jumping. The S&P and NASDAQ hitting all-time highs again. Bond yields lower, like we were discussing. What is that message telling us? Joining me is Abe Deshpande. He's the chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. Abe, just a quick gut feel here as to why this is such a benign environment for stocks why they're not more, if we want to call it, concerned about low rates and maybe a slowing or slower economy or recovery over time? Yeah, the interesting thing is um, today's kind of speech takes off the table. One of the main concerns I think that the market has been kind of grappling with over the past several months, which is that the forward-looking numbers look like they're starting to weaken for the global economy. on top of that, you've had the majority of the world's central banks already raising interest rates. And so the question was, well, is the Fed potentially going to raise into a slowing economy that kind of would turn a uh, routine downturn into or softening into something worse? And that I think that relief today or last, you know, probably going for the next uh, few, few, few months will be that, OK, he's not going to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And that that's, provides some relief. Uh, the small cap 
stocks, for instance, mid-cap stocks around the world, and especially the United States, have really softened since March. They've been kind of going nowhere, wondering about this, what's going to happen. And this takes off the table anyway. It's like an immediate policy uh, mistake. That risk is probably off the table. Very, um, very yeah, interesting. It helps, it helps a lot of different asset classes. So for those who say, you know what, I'm fed up with all this Fed speak, you know, give me some plays, give me some ideas for how I can make money and kind of not have to worry about this. But you actually have three really interesting names here, all of which uh, Mohawk and ICL at least are up about 40 percent year to date. Uh, Vopac is down about 20 percent. But again, these are not names we're talking about every day. What's the idea here? Yes, the idea is that in the end, I really don't know what's going to happen. And no one really can predict the future. So we've all, at Centerstone, we've always tried to pick a middle path and try to find companies that are just uh, cheap on an intrinsic value basis. And then we don't have to worry so much about what is the Fed going to do? Uh, you know, what's, it, what's the economy going to do next month? If we can buy and hold something and, 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 and acquire it at a low enough price, that margin of safety is there for us too and helps us to manage through all kinds of different challenges. So all three of these companies, a Mohawk, clearly has benefited already by the uh, tight housing market, um, Israel Chemical by the t- sort of tightness in fertilizer and bromine, and BOPAC, um, which is, has been punished by um, a, uh, a very healthy demand for energy and oil stocks. BOPAC, uh, they store, you know, at terminals, they store oil. So in the face of a strengthening economy, some of these companies do very well, some of them don't do so well. And the idea is to have a mix of, of a lot of things so that on average, you're okay. Wow. So we're also showing markets, uh, even as we talk, are moving to fresh session highs. It was interesting to me as well today that despite falling yields, some of the regional banks are rising and doing pretty well. Are those, I mean, do you want to get near those kinds of names? Because it seems like the traditional valuation arguments often don't hold up, that they tend to rise and fall with interest rates. And that's been such a difficult thing to call lately. Yeah, so I think um, part of the weakness uh, or the sort of stabilization of those stocks after a big run from last year was that there was this concern of a slowdown. That slowdown potential still exists, but the idea of it turning into a major credit problem is probably, uh, that risk is greatly reduced. So these regional banks are probably somewhat attractive. Uh, we do own a, you know, a, a, some exposure to them. Um, and, you know, it, I think uh, between that, they, there's also this co- kind of correlation of regional banks with small cap, mid cap space. There's also like a technical trade that, that kind of goes one, you know, you get one with the other, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's a good place to be. All right. Interesting. Well, that wasn't quite as much fun as Real or Reddit, but we'll try to do that again <laughs> soon as well. Maybe one of these names will be the next one. Abe, thanks for your time as always. Abe Deshpande with Centerstone. Coming up, oil is rising today, and that's in part due to storms headed towards the Gulf of Mexico. So it's not the situation in Afghanistan per se. And even though we often equate oil and geopolitics, there's another natural resource in Afghanistan that could be more disrupted. And we will tell you all about that. Plus, CNBC is rolling out a new documentary on the race to create the COVID-19 vaccine. Coming up, we'll hear how personal and emotional this was to the scientists working on it. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. everybody. The U.S. has less than four days to meet the deadline to withdraw from Afghanistan. And yesterday's bombings in Kabul have made the situation a lot more complicated. The Taliban's control of the country and the escalating tensions are putting the region at risk for further destabilization. And it'll have global ramifications. Here to discuss, Halima Croft is head of global commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets and a CNBC contributor. And CNBC's own Brian Sullivan is here around the table as well. So it's a real pleasure to have you guys all here today. Halima, let me just start with you. There has been a lot of talk about Afghanistan's rare earth minerals. I think lithium, there's a decent supply there as well. But we hear this time and again over the years, and it seems like it remains all talk and no action. Will this time be different? I mean, in 2010, the Department of Defense basically said Afghanistan could be the Saudi Arabia of lithium. It has incredibly large lithium deposits, also has significant deposits of copper, iron, the type of critical minerals that will be needed in an energy transition story. But the problem is the security situation, the problems with governance have prevented the exploitation of that resource. Now, the question is, do the Chinese who control right now the critical value chain for renewables, do they seek to go into Afghanistan and help the Taliban exploit that resource? I think it's going to be still very, very difficult even for China to do that, given the exodus of Afghan officials. But this is certainly the play to watch. And, Brian, this raises an issue the entire country faces right now about its economy. I mean, you have most of the infrastructure, now the Taliban taking over, the revenue-raising sources completely unclear. The head of the Afghan Central Bank was part of the uh, exodus before things got really tragic. Opium is basically the the biggest or best option that they have. How do you think they might try to play with things like rare earth metals? I mean, do they even have the capabilities to produce these, even if somebody like China were interested? No, no. And by by the way, first things first, my friend's son, by the way, just got deployed there at Kabul airport, showed up last week. So shout out to all the soldiers and families that are that are there. Um, Yeah, they don't have any infrastructure. I mean, there's there's no infrastructure as well. You read every report, they talk about it being mineral rich, but right. it's road poor. Right. And what I mean by that is not only are there are no facilities there, but there's no roads. Now, the interesting thing, and by the way, Halima knows a lot about this because this is where she was stationed back in her government days, was the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. You look what China has done there because of cobalt. They came in, they paid for roads. They literally built a port basically for themselves. We're going to watch China. Because if there are infrastructure investments to be made, it will be the Chinese paying for them for their own benefit. I think Halima would agree with that. I'm also curious, Halima, when you respond to that, you know, reading Times uh, accounts in the Times, the Journal or elsewhere, I literally see people saying Afghanistan is becoming Las Vegas for terrorists between ISIS, the Haqqani Network, al-Qaeda, the Taliban. If China doesn't want a destabilized region on its borders that could potentially spill over into its own country, how do they both prevent that from happening, while at the same time, like Brian's saying, try to do anything about tapping the, this vast mineral wealth. 
I mean, this is the fine line China's going to have to walk. I mean, they have real concerns about their Uyghur population, about their security threat internally. The Taliban came out and basically said the Uyghurs were a domestic concern for China. We've had the Chinese foreign minister meet with senior Taliban officials in July. I mean, I think the Chinese are hoping the situation remains stable on their border. But after what happened yesterday, I mean, we have a situation where we have ISIS-K targeting the Taliban, targeting U.S. interests as we try to leave. And then we have the very real risk that al-Qaeda will come home with their partners, the Taliban, and essentially that will be the once again reconstituted al-Qaeda-based plot operation. So it absolutely is becoming a core terrorist threat right now. And Halima, you're working yourself on some of these rescue efforts. Is that right? Trying to get people out. What can you tell us? I mean, we're a part of a group, I can't give all the details, trying to get out a significant delegation involving, you know, high profile young women. It is very, very challenging because of the situation at the airport. Even if you have a plane to take your people, a country that will take them and offer them asylum, the situation at the airport is incredibly desperate. And after the attacks yesterday, it's just that much harder to get your people through the gates onto their planes for sanctuary. I wonder what the, the U.S. military has been very helpful, but it's very, very challenging. I wonder what the, the, the jet fuel situation, for example, sure. is like. I mean, there are just basic things that we think about. And by the way, quick final note. A lot of these minerals that we talk about for the electrification, of it's not just Afghanistan. They're in a lot of weird, bad, dangerous places. Myanmar, where there's lack of government control. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is going to be a global challenge for years and decades to come, Uh, not just Afghanistan. No, absolutely. And even one of the greatest possible opportunities for a place like Afghanistan that perhaps they'll never be able to take advantage of. Guys, thank you all. Brian Sullivan, Halima Croft, we appreciate it with the latest there. Let's take a look at some of the stocks involved in lithium, speaking of which. First, a look at the lithium and battery ETF, ticker LIT. It's seen a 35% rally this year, and it's just below its 52-week highs. Its top holdings include Albemarle, Yonan Energy, and Ganfeng Lithium. Speaking of Albemarle, the North Carolina-based company has seen a huge jump this year, up nearly 60%. It's up 365% from its March lows. Another big winner winner is Lithium Americas, up more than 40% this year, and it got a nice pop late last week after Tesla announced plans to open its network of charging stations to other manufacturers' cars. Lithium, of course, is used in the manufacturing of electric vehicle batteries. Coming up, two popular stay-at-home plays getting crushed today. First, the parent of Grubhub down is New York City caps fees. And Peloton is the worst performer in the NASDAQ 100 after its results. We have those movers, rapid fire, and more still ahead. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. We have stocks moving to session highs in the wake of Jay Powell's comments this morning. The Fed chair speaking about the taper, which he does see potentially taking place this year, but also talked a lot about why he otherwise sees inflation 
being transitory. This is levitating stocks. It's depressing bond yields. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about that. The Nasdaq up one and a quarter percent right now. Energy, materials and uh, communication services are leading the way energy because in part of uh, Hurricane Ida headed towards Louisiana. Here are some of the individual movers this hour. Just Eat Takeaway, the parent of Grubhub, is down as New York puts a cap on how much third party delivery services can charge. Uh, Grub is down nearly seven percent right now. Bill.com is higher after reporting sales above expectations. They provide financial software for small and medium-sized businesses. 27% gain there. This stock has doubled year-to-date. And check out support.com. Feels like 1998 with some of these names. It's a social media darling. It closed below $9 a share last Friday. You can see behind me, it's over $50 today. It's up 156%. Don't look for any fundamental news because we haven't seen it. Let's get to Rahel Solomon, meantime, for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. Advisors have told President Biden that another terror attack in Kabul is likely the warning coming before Biden met with Israeli Prime Minister Bennett. Commanders also updated Biden and Vice President Harris on efforts to develop ISIS-K targets in response to yesterday's attack. And on the news, what form those targets might take and how evacuation efforts are going. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. The U.K. says that two British citizens and the child of another Briton were among those killed in the Kabul attack. Prime Minister Johnson also saying that Britain will move, quote, heaven and earth to help stranded evacuees who are eligible to come to the U.K. And the NFL wants to speed up COVID testing for its players. It wants to double the frequency for vaccinated players and go to once a week tests. Unvaccinated players would get tested daily. The Players Association, meantime, has been pushing for daily testing for all players. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Okay, Rahel, thank you, Rahel Solomon. Apple's big reversal, Beijing's potential ban, and a warning for people dumping Peloton. All those movers coming up in rapid fire. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch up on a few other stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines today, Deirdre, Deirdre, by the way, how much longer do we have you? A few days, maybe, Kelly. Wow. We'll see. We'll oh. see. Down Fingers crossed for the, for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Deirdre Posta is here. Steve Kovac, hopefully he's with us uh, for you know, the next few months. Uh, CNBC.com's tech editor. And Gina Sanchez is Chantico Global Wealth CEO and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, everybody. We're going to start with this blockbuster news from Apple. The about face on their App Store policies as they agree to some concessions to app developers. They will now let developers talk to users about alternative payment methods, not in the App Store uh, previously, app makers were barred from prompting users to their websites to pay for digital products, instead forcing transactions through the App Store, where Apple charged anywhere from 15 to 30 percent. So what does this really change? Steve, I'm going to start with you. Is it going far enough? Um, should we expect further changes to come? And, and we're just going to have to wait to see how investors react to this change in a key part of their business model. Yeah, uh, a couple of things there, Kelly. Uh, if you ask the developers who have been complaining about these commission fees, Apple charges, uh, the Spotify's, the matches, the epics of the world, they don't think this goes far enough. What they would really like to be able to do is instead of this narrow decision Apple made where, hey, we can email you about these alternative ways to pay for our services, they want to do it inside the app. They don't want to have this alternative method of external communication. They want to be able to tell you, sign up inside the app. Don't give Apple the fee. We can even give you a discount if you go through us, our payment system instead. So this is not going to end the debate over this whole commission thing. We have the vote coming up next week in Korea that is going to really 
uh, be the first major economy that could take a hit at the commission fee in a significant way. And then we have bills already in the works from like Senator Amy Klobuchar here in the U.S. Senate that could do the same thing. So this is very minor. It's not going to hit app store margins anytime soon. It's interesting, Gina, to look at the shares of three quarters of one percent. And it still seems like when you boil down a lot of the excitement around Apple, it does come down to the services business. It's fast growth, the high profit margins. And a lot of that still goes back to the App Store in some way. What will it take for investors to be more rattled by some of the changes that could be coming? Like I think that the vote uh, in Korea is going to be important. Um, and I think what happens in the U.S. and quite frankly in the EU, because the EU is also struggling on these issues, um, is, is important because if you look at where the growth comes from in Apple, I completely agree. The growth comes from the services side. And the question that regulators are asking is, can, you know, can Apple play the role of being a platform and also uh, being a part of its own ecosystem. And if the answer to that is no, then Apple is not going to be able to guard the gate and they will not be able to guard their margin. And that will rattle investors. Deirdre, what would you add? I would add um, kind of similar to what Gina and C said. This thing is a bit of a sideshow. I mean, it does nothing to reduce friction for developers within their apps. You have to go outside. So potentially it actually might annoy users, lead to more emails uh, from those developers. So I think that the other battle, especially the ones that Steve mentioned, the bills and South Korea's vote, I think that that's going to be a lot more instrumental to the future of the App Store. But it's no surprise that developers um, aren't happy or, or saying we shouldn't be duped by this one win because it's not much of a concession at all for Apple. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll see where this road heads next. Meantime, let's get the latest on this crackdown in China, which does also continue. The country was reportedly set to propose new rules banning companies with large amounts of sensitive user data from listing here in the U.S. Regulators in both countries are stepping up enforcement with Chinese officials announcing stricter rules on U.S. tech companies and our SEC moving to acquire additional disclosures from companies seeking to go public on U.S. exchanges. Despite the rebounds this week, it's still a sea of red this year in Chinese tech stocks. Alibaba, Didi, Pinduoduo, and the KWeb China Internet ETF all down 30 to 50 percent this year. And Deirdre, we're obviously focusing on the aspects that affect stocks directly. But there's a lot else going on in China right now in terms of this crackdown. There are high-profile social media stars that are kind of being, I don't know what, I don't even know how to describe some of the things that are happening. They're there's this, it seems like there's more going on, including the regulators wanting to crack down on this 996 work model, which would, yeah. people always said you work nine hours a day, six days a week, you know, and so, so on and so forth. So what is this all really telling us about what's happening over there? I think what it tells us is that no one really knows and there's just still so much more uncertainty despite sort of the bargain hunting that we have seen over the last week or so. One of the most interesting developments, I think, Kelly, is that you're starting to see or hear about more state ownership in the technology companies. Usually that's reserved for banks and utilities in China. But the whole idea of ByteDance, perhaps getting a 1% ownership stake by the CCP, the government, Ant Group, having some of their business fall under the purview of the central bank there, the PBOC. That's really interesting because normally these technology companies have been able to operate more independently, like Alibaba. So you've seen a lot of innovation and growth. If they are further brought into the party machinery, that raises real prospects for long-term innovation, I think, for these companies. On TechCheck, we started, we spoke to 
uh, someone who is starting a China fund right now. So clearly, and there's also Kathy Wood, who sees some opportunity here. But I think the long term picture is certainly changing. Gina, are and you saying it's just, away? We just don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with, agree with you that this is, there's a lot of uncertainty right now because if you listen to Xi Jinping and if, you, if you've been watching Xi Jinping over the last few decades, you know this is a guy that plays the long game. He started talking common prosperity in 2016. This is not new. Um, however, the way that they're going about exacting how common prosperity is going to be um, uh, done in China has been a whole series of seemingly unrelated inquiries into various tech companies' practices, whether it be gig workers, whether it be sensitive data, whether it be, which tells you that nobody knows how they're going to get hit. They simply know that they might get hit by virtue of being overly prosperous. Yeah, and that's what Michael Yoshikami keeps warning us about as well. All right, let's check in on what's happening with this chip shortage. Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the largest chip maker in the world and one of Apple's biggest suppliers, is now announcing price hikes of up to 20 percent as the shortage persists. Most major car manufacturers that source chips from Taiwan Semi are hurt by the shortage, but rising prices seem to be helping the semiconductor industry. Taiwan Semi is up 10 percent this week. The SMH ETF is up nearly 6 percent, and all components of the index are positive. Siva, I guess... If people are accepting price all up and down the supply chain, then ultimately consumer prices will go up as well. I don't know if this is a major cost input, but it's just a sign that this is how they're going to have to allocate resources as the shortage continues. Exactly. And, and this report made me think back to Roku's earnings a couple weeks ago, where they said they were squeezed by these tight component costs. And instead of charging you more for a $50 Roku device, they just charge you the same, and they ate the cost. So it's going to be really interesting to see as we enter the holiday season where all these gadgets are coming out from Apple and Samsung and Google and all the rest. Are they, when they price these devices, are they going to make the consumer eat the cost for these higher components, or are they just going to eat it themselves? Obviously, the bigger guys can afford better to absorb those costs. Deirdre? That's exactly my question. You know, Apple being the biggest customer of TSMC, are they going to pass along these costs to the customer? And I think the original piece said that, yeah, that could actually happen. But I think that Apple has certainly some levers it can pull when it comes to the new iPhone. So that is going to be key there, especially, Kelly, when we talk about the whole inflation debate. Yeah, and I'm looking at the consumer spending report this morning. Again, you have Jeffrey saying that they see consumers in a position to take price, they say, for the first time in 20 years. So a big macro change as well as a, an input change there as well. All right, before we go, we have to hit this move in Peloton, a bigger-than-expected loss in a subscriber miss, sending those shares down. Peloton lowering its revenue guidance, slashing the cost of its basic bike again by 20 percent. The DOJ also subpoenaing the company for documents related to its tread injuries. But Loop Capital, and this is quite the quote, says selling these shares on these price cuts would be like selling Apple when the company cut the price of its iPod. <laughs> Loop is bullish, saying the lower prices uh, increase the addressable market for Peloton and that their management has a history of under-promising and over-delivering. Gina, do you buy a Peloton? It's down 6.5% today. Well, you know, th there's two parts to the story. One is the growth and the other is the long-term sort of where they settle. Right now, they're growing into themselves. But remember that the lockdown was an enormous tailwind to them. They were able to, to really dramatically increase their subscribers. But now you're going to get into the churn, and that tailwind is turning into a headwind. This price drop is a sign of saturation. And if you get to saturation too quickly, the growth story is over. You can't really justify 195 times forward earnings. And I was thinking, Steve, as they did this, I was just going back and looking at the history of Amazon and Costco, et cetera. And, 
you know, it is true that you sometimes have to choose. Are you going to be a, a low price offering? Are you going to be a high priced elite offering? Obviously, Peloton is an elite product, but at some point they have to be affordable in order to keep increasing their market share. So I'll give you the final word on Peloton today. Yeah, I, I don't understand why there are so many complaints about this price drop on the bike. That expands their market. That makes it more accessible. And the whole point of Peloton is you buy the bike once and then you're stuck on the service for several years, 40 bucks a month. They will find a way to raise their subscription prices by adding more things. So it's such a sticky product. People are obsessed with it. So why not make it more affordable to more people and sell the service with better margins? They could just give it away, right? But <laughs> it's Yeah, point, free bikes. Why yeah, not? Free bikes. I mean, this is the loss leader so that you get the revenue subscription, Steve. But if at some point, you know, it's, they, they just can't cut it all the way to zero. I, I don't know. Right. right. Of course not. And the bike still is not cheap. <laughs> You're still spending 1500 bucks or whatever it is, even at this cut price. Yeah. De- Deirdre? I'm just upset because I just got my latest Peloton a few weeks ago, so I missed that price cut. But I'm with Steve here. It's all about the subs. It's not really about the cost. you got the iPhone SE. You've got the premium iPhone. Yeah. So there can be different cost points. It's still an expensive bike it, it, and it, tread and potentially rower. It makes the current owners mad. They paid more than they had to. Deirdre Bosa, Steve Kovac, and Gina <laughs> Sanchez, thank you for this edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, Bill DeBear reporting record earnings, but executives expressed caution about the pandemic. They also face major supply chain issues, wage inflation. We're going to talk to the CEO about all that and more in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Build-A-Bear Workshop reported stronger-than-expected earnings and hiked guidance yesterday. But executives noted headwinds in the earnings call, including wage inflation, supply chain disruption, and the ongoing uncertainty surrounding COVID. Joining us to discuss is CEO Sharon Price. John, Sharon, it's great to have you here. This is such a recognizable consumer name and maybe a good window into what's happening with the global supply chain. So can you talk to us about some of the challenges you're facing? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's not uh, we're not unique in some of the issues that are going on from a supply, supply chain perspective, as well as some of the ongoing issues with COVID. We do have some of our factories intermittently shutting down. Um, there are some challenges with um, the containers, some challenges with um, unloading docks, all sorts of things going on. I will also note that uh, we mentioned on the call that we had pulled forward a good portion of our back half uh, inventory and have already receded that and also have a lot more on the water. Um, so we do feel good about our back half inventory. We just want to be sure that we're um, being realistic about some of those supply chain issues and that it is there is some cost issues as well, even though we've taken some very strategic price increases to uh, help mitigate what could be some margin, um, some margin uh, squeeze. I will say that, that all of that is contemplated in the upward revision of our 21, uh, 2021 fiscal guidance, um, where we brought that from uh, an EBITDA uh, upward revision to 45 to $50 million versus the, 38 to, uh, the 28 to 32, where yeah. we had been prior. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it is interesting. It's almost like we don't want to tell people that your margins are like 50 percent. We're going to go <laughs> cut the price of the bears. Um, no, it, it is amazing that you have that kind of pricing power. And I think this could be interesting for a lot of people to think about when we're talking about how much your costs are up. 
Tell us what you mean by strategic price increases. You know, how do you figure out where and how you can do that without alienating customers? Because that's separate from the whole challenge of just making sure that there are bears available so that you don't have to forego sales because of supply chain problems. Well, Kelly, I think that um, one of the things that's really important to understand about Build-A-Bear is we are a, a company that appeals to a broad array of consumers um, from children all the way to adult collectors. Um, and we've been building and broadening that consumer base for quite some time. On the children front, where, where we started almost 25 years ago, um, accessibility is very important to us. We do maintain an entry-level price point where people can participate uh, in Build-A-Bear and come to our stores or go online and make sure they can get a furry, fur- a furry friend of their own, a special furry friend. We still have what we call our Count Your Candles Bear, uh, where you can come in uh, and get a bear for the price of uh, your how many candles you have on your birthday cake. <laughs> so uh, that maintains an entry-level price point in a natural sort of way for kids to come in and celebrate their most special day. So some of the strategic moves that we make on the pricing often have to do with uh, some of these more collectible type of bundles that are sure. already in the higher price range anyway. Right. And you know that there's a little bit more room there. Sharon, we exactly. appreciate it. It's great to have you here. We'll be interested to follow your story as you guys head into the key consumer season here with Christmas coming up and all that. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you. We appreciate the time. Sharon Price John is the CEO of Build a Bear Workshop. Up next, COVID vaccines were developed in record time, and we're going to get a sneak peek at a new CNBC documentary about the race for the shots and a heartwarming moment for the Moderna team in particular. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. CNBC Digital is debuting a new documentary today on CNBC.com and YouTube. It's called A Race Against COVID-19, How Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech Developed Vaccines in Record Time. And our own Meg Terrell spoke to Moderna's researcher and CEO about getting the phase three results and a surprise phone call. I just got this text message from um, our clinical operations lead. He was saying, jump back on the line. We're hearing the results. So I came on and Stephen Hogue, our president, had been invited to the closed session of the DSMB to hear the results. He put it on speaker so that those of us that were in the room could hear it. And then um, this muffled voice came through and said, you guys did a great job. Now get to work. And that muffled voice was Dr. Fauci. And he was so happy. We were so happy. It lasted 10 minutes. You know, we just told you the top line results and I said, we're going to send you the data. And so I left my home office. I, I went to see my wife. And this, this time I cried a lot. <laughs> when all the work was done, my wife had prepared a nice dinner and we opened a very nice bottle of wine. And we enjoyed it. And I kept the bottle. <laughs> Kelly, this documentary is filled with stories like that from the very earliest days when all of these researchers and companies felt like they were in this alone. The world was doubting that A, a vaccine would be needed and B, a vaccine would be possible, much less with this technology that had never gotten across the finish line yet before mRNA. Uh, It's a really great watch. It's on CNBC.com and on YouTube for folks if they want to check it out. How long is it, Meg? It's an hour long. <laughs> it is. Okay. I'm trying to figure out where exactly, you know, maybe we put it on during, that would be a lot of screaming. Uh, so I, I'm very, very much looking forward to it. Do you guys get into how, you know, the science of it all, or is this more kind of just the story and the people involved and, and that moment which you just brought us? 
There's definitely some signs of it. One of the most interesting conversations I think we had is with um, Pfizer's chief of vaccine research, Catherine Jansen, who said, essentially, Albert Borla said, we need a vaccine, figure out the best way to go. And she assessed every vaccine platform and said, we need to go with mRNA. And he was like, really? We've never done a vaccine with mRNA before. And she said, yes, this is the way that scientifically makes the most sense. So it's just fascinating to hear about how they thought about these things so early on. Absolutely. Kudos. Meg, thanks very much for bringing us a piece of that. We're looking forward to it. Our Meg Terrell, you can check out the full documentary, A Race Against COVID-19, as I mentioned, on CNBC.com or on YouTube, if you can put that on your TVs. Let's get a check on the vaccine makers and how they've done since they received emergency use authorization from the FDA. Pfizer was the first to receive theirs on December 11th of 2020. It's actually up only about 13% since then. Moderna was approved on December 18th of 2020. It's up 165% since then, of course, mRNA being the technology that Meg was just referencing. And Johnson & Johnson received its own EUA for its vaccine on February 27th of this year. It's up about 10% in that time. Still ahead, the retail traders are getting smarter, but that could increase the potential for new investors to get burned. We're going to dig into what's called the graduation effect next. Welcome back. As they continue to invest, the Reddit traders are getting into more complicated vehicles and they're learning to do it on social media. And now that's caught the SEC's attention. Kate Rooney is here with those details. Kate. Hey, Kelly, just last hour, the SEC putting out a request for more information and public comments on how brokerage firms use tech to engage with their customers and possible gamification of trading. The SEC says that digital engagement can harm retail investors if it prompts them to trade either too frequently or use some of the strategies that tend to carry additional risk. That includes options trading. And this comes, Kelly, as traders are moving to some of those riskier strategies. Analysts I've been talking to are calling it a graduation effect for those new traders. Most started out with single stocks. They are quickly moving on to some of the more complicated trades with the help of social media and some of those low-cost apps. Over the past Two years, we have seen a spike in options activity, and it's coincided with that rise in retail trading. Since those pandemic lockdowns started back in 2020, you can see options activity going up about sevenfold. That's according to data compiled by brokerage API firm Tradier. Retail activity as a percentage of overall volumes has also moved up in lockstep there. Now makes up almost 30 percent of total trades. One of the big factors at play here is social media traders are learning some of those strategies in places like Reddit, YouTube, and Discord, where they find content and sense of a community as well. They, the barriers to entry, Kelly, have also essentially gone away. It's now more accessible with hundreds of trading apps, including Robinhood, now offering options, and it's a lot cheaper. Commissions have essentially dropped to zero. Kelly, back to you. It's so interesting, Kate, to think through. Does options trading mean the same thing as gamification or does gamification just refer to any kind of way that people might be trading? I think it refers to trading across the board. Robinhood has gotten dinged by other regulators. FINRA, for example, the state of Massachusetts has gone after them and they have changed some of their strategies there. But I think it refers to other brokerage firms as well. The idea of sort of enticing people to trade and just spend more time on their phone Uh, Does that eventually uh, sort of move on to options? That could be the case, but it's sort of across the board, cryptocurrency, stocks in general, and what goes on. You know, we've seen what happened with GameStop, so... 
a lot yeah. of attention there right now. I hear people talk, they talk to me about options all the time. It is, is very funny. It is really uh, a force. Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rooney reporting today. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.